I am Dr. Robert Lahida. Hello. I'm professor of medicine at New York Medical College and clinical professor at Rutgers, the New Jersey Medical School. I write a column for the Saddle River, New Jersey magazine called Ask Dr. Bob. In this podcast, I'll answer some medical questions from the interested public, and on occasion, I'll give commentary. Some of the more interesting questions that are posed to me are questions about brain function and memory loss and brain fog. What are some of the good foods that can help prevent memory loss? I thought that was an excellent question and relevant to discussions of diet control of mental health. If you eat the proper foods good for the brain, then you can begin to see results. Conditions of the aging mind, such as memory loss and Parkinson's disease and all of the dementias, can be controlled somewhat by your diet. And here are some of the foods that can help with cognition. Cognition means brain function. There are a whole bunch of things that you can eat that will help you. For example, almonds, which contain a lot of vitamin E, can prevent memory loss and overall cognitive decline. Of course, you can buy vitamins in your health food store or in some pharmacies that contain vitamin E. 200 to 400 units per day is the appropriate dose, and usually gel capsules. Almonds also contain vitamin B6 that helps the body metabolize proteins, which are responsible for cellular repair within the brain. Then we go to other things like uh, whole eggs, not just the egg whites, but the whole egg. This contains choline, which is also something that helps your memory, and some say reduces the risk of Alzheimer's disease. Forget about the misguided fears about cholesterol and eating eggs. That's a big fear that is not real. It is real if your cholesterol is over the moon, and by over the moon I mean usually greater than 220. But for most aging individuals, one or two whole eggs per day is probably good for your health. Eggs also have lutein, which is good for the health of your eyes. And that brings up another factor. In your health food store, you can buy lutein-containing capsules, which are good for your eye health and for things like the prevention of macular degeneration. Some ophthalmologists or eye specialists actually give prescriptions for lutein-containing vitamins. Then there's flaxseed and kale, which are also very important to health. Flaxseed contains omega-3 fatty acids, which increases special memory in babies and prevents depression symptoms in some studies. Flaxseeds are also rich in magnesium and vitamin B, and kale is also kind of a superfood. It does just about everything. Researchers say that this vegetable is chock full of antioxidants, calcium, vitamin K, something called phylloquinone, lutein, which I mentioned previously for your eyes, nitrates, folate, and alpha-tocopherol. All of these wonderful ingredients control cognitive decline according to neurological researchers. So that's all about that. And then there's the issue of brain fog, which is common in people who are on chemotherapy, and it's common to people who are in their premenopausal to menopausal stages. Some patients with chronic diseases also have what they consider brain fog. And brain fog can be a real problem in these people. And some of these dietary issues or some of these dietary supplements can help avoid brain fog. Another question is, give me one or two common health myths that I can use at cocktail parties to impress my friends. 
Well, there are a number of myths that we can dispel in this broadcast. One of them is that which deals with eggs in your heart. To be sure, eggs are packed with cholesterol, and that is related to heart disease and atherosclerosis or fat deposition in the arteries. It sounds horrible, doesn't it? Well, it's simply not true. For people with normal cholesterol, eating one egg a day doesn't affect your total cholesterol or harm your heart. This could be due to the findings that eating an egg falls or fails, I'm sorry, to raise the cholesterol in the blood in any major way. The overall benefits of eating eggs far outweigh the dangerous risks. Another wonderful myth is that cold air causes colds. We all remember this when mom says, don't go out in the cold, you could get a cold. You could get a rhinitis. You could get a coryza. Your nose will start to run and you're going to be strapped with a major cold. Remember, don't go outside with your hair wet. You could get a cold. Well, all of this is not how colds come about. Colds come from virus infections, rhinoviruses, usually, and not from being cold. You can be dipped naked in ice water and you will not get a cold from that. And uh, that is reminded at the turn of the year where there are multiple polar bear dippings in various icy cold weathers, and none of those people, or the vast majority of those people, do not get colds, even though they have dipped themselves naked in ice water. You could get a cold, however, if somebody sneezes on you in an airplane or on a bus. People ask, why are flu and colds so common in the wintertime? The going belief is that people are forced indoors during the winter and closer together where cold and flu viruses spread more easily when we're clumped together particularly in something like a movie theater or in church, for that matter, where people are sneezing and people are, in fact, shaking hands or, in the case of Christian faiths, perhaps giving each other the peace with a peck on the cheek or with a handshake, which is already contaminated. So you've got to be careful about that. But the myth that cold air causes colds is definitely not true. Now, I have to comment about vaccines. There is a question here from a, a listener that says, are vaccines really harmful? I would say that this should be part of myth busting. Vaccines have been under fire, and many parents, particularly those from various religious sects, withhold vaccines from their children with the belief that the vaccines will hurt their children and even cause disease or autism. Like any other medication, a vaccine can certainly have side effects, and most of these are minor, usually a low-grade fever, muscle aches, you feel like maybe you feel a little weakened, you feel a little tired, and that usually lasts one or two days. But some people who are allergic to eggs might have an acute reaction, and in children this can happen hours or days after the injection. But you know, folks, it's more important to be vaccinated for diseases like polio, measles, whooping cough, and of course the yearly flu. Children particularly should be immunized and not spared the vaccine because of irrational fears. Everybody says, well, it's not going to happen to me, but you know, I have seen cases where children are infected with the measles virus and get encephalitis, which means inflammation of the brain, or get even worse than that, get staphylococcal pneumonia, which is extremely unusual, but they get the flu and then they get a viral pneumonia, and over on top of that viral pneumonia, is a bacterium like the Staphylococcus, or even, God forbid, the Streptococcus, which can cause early death. And we have seen it. We've seen subacute panencephalitis from measles 
in young people. And in fact, I remember a young lady who was in the hospital for many, many months with encephalopathy, SSPE, subacute sclerosing panencephalitis. She basically was a dysfunctional person for the rest of her life because she was not immunized against measles and she became subsequently quite ill and died eventually. So you don't want that to happen. Now, with regard to causes of autism, that has been dispelled many years ago. And uh, Dr. Wakefield from England, actually, who considered this as a cause of autism, lost his license and could never practice medicine again in the British Isles or anywhere else for that matter. And that has been dispelled as being phony, false, and really the lack of vaccination as a result of that article has caused more harm than good. Another question that came, and we're going to switch gears completely, is from a guy who says he wants to boost his testosterone. How do I do it safely? First of all, you have to ask the question, why the heck do you want to boost your testosterone? If you're truly hypogonadal, which means your gonads, testicles, don't function properly as a result of a disease like the mumps or because you've had surgery or even perhaps of a war injury, yes, you can get replacement of testosterone by either injection, a gel, or even a tablet, although the gel and injection are the most popular. And this is a natural thing. Testosterone or androgens in general are controlled substances. Doctors are asked to write prescriptions and handle them just like they would narcotics because it's a dangerous drug. A little primer on this wonderful hormone I want to bring to your attention. Testosterone is the main male sex hormone, but most ladies also have small amounts of it. A man makes most of his male hormone in his testes, whereas a woman makes most of her male hormones in her adrenal glands, the small glands over the kidneys. It's only when you have polycystic ovarian disease and a certain tissue takes hold in the ovary, the cystic ovary, that a woman can make more androgen from her ovaries. During puberty in boys, physical changes like a deepened voice, muscle, hair growth are all effects of testosterone. For males, normal levels are important to male health, male health even up to old age. So how do you boost it without taking hormones by injection, which happens to be illegal if you don't have one of the many conditions I mentioned previously? How do you raise your male hormone? Now, in the Me Too movement today, where women are extremely sensitive to the toxic uh, masculinity, I'd like to call it that, toxic masculinity is simply being a super male, aggressive, nasty, hypersexual, and, and rather rude. There are many ways to raise levels of male hormone, but you don't want to create a toxic male. One can exercise and lift weights, eat a lot of protein, lose fat by dieting or exercise, minimize stress, lower cortisol levels, get sun and vitamin D, and take vitamin and mineral supplements. And if you go to a gym and you ask the guys at the gym, how do you guys raise your testosterone? They say, we do it by exercising, particularly doing squats. So they, most men who are still unhappy may ask their doctors to test their levels of testosterone, and the doctor has to do that. And most insurance companies will not reimburse you. Your insurance will not reimburse you for the cost of the testosterone unless you prove that you're hypogonadal. That means have low levels. And the low levels have to be proven, or else they will not approve 
the prescription that your doctor writes for it. Presuming you'll have low testosterone levels, most men would rather take a simple paste or an injection to avoid all the healthy lifestyle hints. The Indian, that's New Delhi, Indian customs believe in natural testosterone boosters like ashwagandha, which I'm sure can be found on Amazon. Infertile men have tried this herb with a fair success if you believe the literature. There's a thing called ginger extract, mostly from animal data, that is also increasing testosterone. And another popular herb is something appropriately called the horny goatweed, or macuna pruriens, which I doubt you can get on Amazon. The important thing to know is that testosterone levels for all of these herbs have been derived from studies in rats or infertile humans and not for men with normal levels. I can recall doing a study on weightlifters at the Cleveland Clinic many years ago when I wrote a paper with a couple of doctors uh, from that Cleveland Clinic on uh, men who were bodybuilders who were taking androgens. And a fair number of those were azoospermic, which meant that they would never again make sperm. They were infertile permanently. And they may have had huge bodies, but their testes were like small raisins. They were not, they were not able to make testosterone and certainly as a result not uh, sperm anymore. Now, <clears throat> we have other questions about um, other sources of nutrition Particularly, is yogurt good for me? Does yogurt provide me with the kind of nutrition I needed if I eat it regularly for breakfast? Well, yogurt, eating it regularly can protect you from high blood pressure, but watch what you're buying because flavored yogurts are full of sugar, added sugar, with its links to weight gain, high blood pressure, inflammation, and certainly heart disease. For the healthiest choice, you want to get plain, low-fat yogurt and add your own fresh fruits, cinnamon or vanilla for flavor. Deep-fried potatoes from restaurants and fast food places have lots of fat and salt, which is bad news for your heart. One study found that people who ate French fries or hash browns two to three times a week were more likely to die much earlier than others. If you like to eat that stuff, get the smallest portion possible or split your order with the guy or lady with you. Even better, make your own oven-baked fries with heart-healthy olive oil, which most restaurants don't do. They'll be even better for you if you use sweet potatoes rather than regular potatoes. Remember, deep-frying chicken adds calories, fat, and sodium to an otherwise healthy food. Some people have called, well, I don't want to mention the brand of fried chicken, but some people have said it's donuts which taste like chicken. They've linked fried food with type 2 diabetes, obesity, high blood pressure, all of which raise your odds of, your odds of heart failure. For a crispy but healthier choice, bread skinless chicken breasts in whole wheat flour and bake that instead of frying it. Now, I mentioned omega-3 fatty acids with regard to um, brain food uh, previously. A lot of us take omega-3 fatty acids before going to bed. Uh, this can risk the abnormal heartbeats arrhythmias. Um, salmon, for example, that's chock full of this, uh, can decrease, I'm sorry, they decrease the risk of abnormal heartbeats like arrhythmias. It can lower your triglyceride levels, slow the growth of plaque in your arteries, and slightly lower your blood pressure. 
The American Heart Association recommends two servings of omega-3 rich foods like salmon each week, and a serving size is about 3.5 ounces of cooked fish. It's a versatile food, salmon. You grill it, you can rub it or marinate it, you can chop it and add it to a pasta dish with fat-free marinara sauce or add it to your salads for protein punch. And, you know, it makes a difference as to whether you're eating farmed or wild salmon because the omega-3 oil within the fish is different for each. It turns out that farm-raised salmon tend to have more omega-3 fat, but also more total fat. Even though farm salmon has more saturated fat, is still about half the amount found in the same portion of flank steak. So the other things to eat uh, with regard to omega-3s, which I mentioned is very good for you, is ground flaxseed with both soluble and insoluble fiber. The omega-3s are there. It's one of the highest available sources of lignans, which have both plant estrogen and antioxidant qualities. Ground flaxseed is easy to incorporate into your diet, can be mixed uh, with just about anything you normally eat. Sprinkle it on your breakfast cereal, on top of low-fat yogurt, mix it into muffins, or combine it into your smoothies. All of that will be a very, very delicious and helpful and healthy meal. One other thing is oatmeal. I eat oatmeal about once a week when it's really cold. It's a tasty breakfast food and another good source of those omega-3 fatty acids. It's a fiber superstar, and we God knows we need fiber in our diets. Every sitting gives you about four grams in a cup. It also has nutrients like magnesium, potassium, and iron. So oatmeal is a good thing. And also, you can eat an oatmeal cookie. You can buy oat bread or mix whole rolled oats into turkey burger uh, meatloaf. You can roll oats into your meatloafs uh, and really achieve the same fiber-like effect. Now, there are other questions which I want to deal with, and this will be the last question I deal with in, in this broadcast, and that is there are issues about sleeping. And most patients say, I don't sleep enough. You know, I get five or six hours sleep a night, and I wake up tired, or I have a pain syndrome. I go to sleep, and I risk, I roll all around. Well, you know what? If you, if you wake up several times a night, then you should see your doctor about chronic pain conditions, particularly if you're a lady. Fibromyalgia is a chronic cause of lack of sleep. If you're depressed or you're anxious or you drink too much coffee before you go to bed or too much tea, you will not have a good night's sleep. And what's a good night's sleep? I say seven hours a night. If you get more than that, great. But seven hours is the minimum. Now, I know our president says he sleeps five hours a night. I personally, as a busy physician, sleep six hours a night. And I know that because I go to bed at the same hour each night and I get up at the same time every morning. There is an article that was quite interesting that said that sleeping too long can raise the risk of stroke. And I think I've written that in February's um, uh, Ask Dr. Bob column for Saddle River Magazine. If you like to sleep a long time, nine or more hours a night, or take long afternoon naps, you got to worry about your stroke risk. And this is from China. According to the research, People who sleep a nap too long increase their risk for stroke by 85%. That's pretty significant. 
regular 90 midday naps can raise the risk 25% compared with not napping or napping for only 30 minutes. People, especially middle-aged and older adults, should pay more attention to their time spent in bed attempting to sleep and midday napping and sleep quality because the appropriate duration of your sleep and your nap and maintaining good sleep quality can complement other behavioral interventions for preventing stroke. And um, this was from China, as I mentioned. These findings don't prove that long napping and sleeping cause stroke, only that there is an association. Now, that brings me to another sleep problem, and that is obstructive sleep apnea. I'm amazed at how common OSA, as we call it, is among people. And this goes for both men and women, although there is a skew towards men. And it probably has something to do with their uh, trachea or their uh, pharynx. Nevertheless, if you snore loudly at night and your mate says, I can't sleep because you snore too loud, it's time for you to have a sleep study. Most large hospitals have sleep laboratories. This is usually run by the pulmonary or lung specialty. And so pulmonary medicine usually has one or two people that are certified in sleep analysis. And here's the good news. You can have it done at home. You can be tested at home. You can be shown how to wire yourself up, go to bed, have a good night's sleep, and the next morning you return the, uh, the attachments to your doctor and he then takes and analyzes on the computer how well you slept the night before. In the old days, we used to have to go to the hospital, sleep lab, and go to bed in pajamas or in whatever state you like to sleep in, and uh, you'd be wired up in the hospital, and you'd get up and down because it was not very comfortable to be wired up in a strange bed, and uh, that's gone. Those days are over. So you can be tested at home, and I highly recommend snorers to get tested for sleep apnea. Why is that important? It's important because your blood pressure, diabetes type 2, atrial fibrillation, which is an irregularity of the heartbeat, all can be enhanced in somebody with OSA. In addition, people who are obese, people who have bull necks, mostly men, uh, have this problem. And this problem can be a major cause of what we call enhanced morbidity or serious health problems. So you don't want that. So I strongly suggest that one consider the amount of time that you sleep and maybe you have to concern yourself with the fact that you could have obstructive sleep apnea and you should get tested. It's not that expensive. Your insurance will cover it most of the time. I'd say 95% of the time your insurance will cover the sleep studies and you'll be a new person for it. You'll lose weight. You'll feel better. You won't be drowsing off during the day or at the steering wheel, God forbid. A lot of sleep apnea-caused accidents are out there, and so I strongly urge everybody to be tested. <clears throat> now, as I mentioned, and this is the last point, sleep deprivation is a common problem. 25% of cardiologists reported suffering insufficient sleep in 2018 during a survey from the Journal of the American Cardiology uh, Subspecialty. And there are various foods that you can take that will cause you to lack sleep. One is high carbohydrate foods right before you go to bed, okay? Donuts, cookies, um, and cookies with tea, which has caffeine in it, can keep you awake. 
Um, high glycemic foods, white bread, white rice, while they're yummy, they're high on the glycemic index. And you've got to be careful because that all of that stuff can disturb your sleep. Uh, a carb-based high glycemic meal four hours before bed can induce sleep. Um, and this is some this is very interesting, but doing so will not translate into a better sleep quality. You've seen that after Thanksgiving dinner, if you have your dinner late at night, everybody feels tired and it's supposed to be related to the tryptophan in the turkey. But then again, we eat a lot of rice, we eat a lot of potatoes and stuff. The glycemic diet makes you tired, sluggish, you go to sleep, but the quality of your sleep through the night is not good. High fat food, caffeine, obviously, alcohol, acidic foods. What are acidic foods? Tomato sauce, unbelievably acidic. Um, and you've got to be careful not to eat that because it's usually spiced up as well. And spicy foods will cause hyperacidity. And remember, your peak acid flow in your stomach is about 2 o'clock in the morning. So if you eat spicy foods, uh, spicy tomatoes, etc., you're going to wake up around 2 or 3 in the morning with heartburn. And you're going to be searching for the, for the Tums or for the antacid like Mylanta in order to go back to sleep. So I think I've covered a fair amount of topics for everyone on tonight's Ask Dr. Bob session. And I hope you enjoyed this podcast. And I'll see you in about a week. Thank you very much for listening.